please uh, take your copy of God's Word, turn back to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. This is our sermon text for this morning, 1 Corinthians 15. We've already read our sermon text for today, but um, I would encourage you to follow me as we talk through 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 20 through 28 this morning. Friends, I think we have underestimated the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Uh, if, we ju- if we view Jesus' resurrection primarily as a significant past event, then we've missed the point. And if we think the benefit of his resurrection is that it proves that Jesus really is who he said he is, then that's really only partially correct. But we have still drastically underestimated the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Last week in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 1 through 19, we learned that if Christ has not been raised from the dead then the gospel is worthless, the witnesses to his resurrection are unreliable, the cross was ineffective, Christians who have died have all perished, Christians who are alive are all fools, baptism is meaningless, and sacrifice for the gospel is pointless. But I want you to notice that everything changes in verse 20 of chapter 15. Paul says in verse 20, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. And in our sermon text this morning, verse 20 through 28, Paul explains that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is a past historical event that initiates and guarantees a sequence of future cosmic realities that all have present implications for our lives. Can I say that again? Past, present, and future. Let's not underestimate the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ because what we'll learn today is this. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is a past historical event that initiates and guarantees a sequence of future cosmic realities that all have present implications for every one of our lives. My prayer is that the resurrection of Jesus will have profound implications in your life today. What are the future events that the resurrection of Christ guarantees? Well, I find four in this text. First of all, in verse 20 through 23, the resurrection of Christ guarantees that his people 
will be made alive. The resurrection of Christ guarantees that his people will be made alive. Look at verse 20 through 23. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Here in verse 20 through 23, Paul tells us that the people of Christ will be made alive because of the resurrection of Christ. And he describes the what, the who, the how, and the when of all of this. First of all, let's talk about the what. What does the resurrection of Christ guarantee? Look there at verse 20. He says, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. And then notice the next words. Christ is the what? First fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Those who have fallen asleep is a metaphor for death. He's, Paul is speaking in imagery here. And what Paul just said about Christ is really significant. In verse 20, Paul says that Jesus Christ is the first fruits of all of those who have died. First fruits is the first of the crop that is harvest. First fruits is the first of the harvest that represents the fact that there's a greater harvest to come. So first fruits is a guarantee of more. And Christ is the first of a great harvest of resurrections to come. He's the first in the line. Notice in verse 23, each in his own order, Christ first, the first fruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. So in verse 21 through 22, Paul describes how. How does Christ's resurrection guarantee that all of his people will also be resurrected from the dead? Well, notice in verse 21 and 22. He explains, for as by a man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. Verse 22, for as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. What Paul is explaining here is a theology of represent, representative headship. Christ and Adam are shown to be the representative heads of all of those who come after them. Adam was the first, the first man. Christ is the second Adam. And notice what he says in verse 21, that by a man, Adam, came death. And so by a man also comes the resurrection of the dead, the first man, Adam, the first Adam brought death upon all who are in Adam. The second Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ brings what? Verse 22, life 
As in Adam all die, so in Christ shall all be made alive. As representative heads, friends, here's the the reality that Paul is explaining. That every human being is either in Adam or in Christ. We're all in Adam by birth. Some humans are in Christ by faith. Those who are in Adam receive an inheritance from Adam. What is it? Death. Those who are in Christ receive an inheritance from Christ. What is it? Life. Resurrection from the dead. Here's the truth. Here's the truth that we all need this morning. We, as sons of Adam, regardless of how good or bad we have been, we are all born as part of the rebellion against God. We're all born separated from God. We're all born outside of the presence of God and under the curse of death. That is what our father Adam gave to us. We can't overcome this condition on our own. Friends, we we can't be good enough to erase our crimes against God and others. And if we die in our sin, we will remain forever sinners, separated from God, under the curse of our sin, in eternal death. The good news, though, is this. God didn't leave us there. God did not leave all of Adam's sons and daughters outside of the garden. God sent his son, Jesus Christ, as the second Adam to do what the first Adam couldn't do, didn't do, and what none of the sons of Adam ever did. Jesus Christ was sent as the second Adam for a new humanity, not by birth, but by new birth, by faith. And the second Adam rescues the sons of Adam from our sin reconciles us back to God and gives us life instead of eternal death. Friends, that's the gospel of Jesus Christ. In Adam, our inheritance is sin, separation, and death. In Christ, our inheritance is righteousness, reconciliation, and resurrection. The Bible puts it like this. Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us back to God. So let me just ask you a question this morning. We're all in Adam by birth. But do you belong to Christ by faith? Paul's point here is this. Christ is the first fruits for the resurrection, verse 23, of all who belong to him. When does this happen? Again, verse 23. But each in his own order. 
Christ, the first fruits, has already been raised from the dead. Then when? At his coming, those who belong to Christ will be resurrected from the dead in a body, just like Jesus was resurrected in a body, a body that could be touched and felt, a body that ate, a body that was glorious compared to his earthly body. At the coming of Christ, verse 23, at his coming, all of those who have died will be resurrected from the dead to eternal life in new bodies. We're going to talk about that next week. This coming in verse 23 It's best understood uh, by the Corinthians as the coming of the emperor to any one of the colonies, the Roman colonies. So the emperor from Rome would visit one of the Roman colonies. He would appear there. He would arrive there and the people of that colony would go to, to greet him. Paul says here that Jesus, the king, is coming, and those who belong to Christ will be changed, coming. You remember in Acts chapter 1, after Jesus died, was buried, raised again, spent about 40 days with the disciples, then in Acts chapter 1, he did what? He ascended. Jesus ascended from earth to heaven. You remember what the angel said in Acts chapter 1, verse 11? The angel said, this Jesus who is taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way you saw him go into heaven. You know how the Bible ends with this same truth of the coming of Jesus. In Revelation 22, Jesus said, behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. Jesus says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. And then the writer of the Revelation goes on and he says this, the spirit and the bride say, come. Let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. Friends, Jesus is coming. And when Christ comes, the resurrection of the dead to eternal life in his kingdom will happen. The past resurrection of Christ guarantees that all those who belong to him will be resurrected to eternal life in his kingdom. Let me ask you a question, Christian. What would it look like to live as those who really believed that the resurrection is guaranteed by Christ? What would it look like right now, today, this week, for you to live really believing that your 
resurrection is guaranteed by the resurrection of Christ. Well, as I told you last week, I appreciate Scotty Smith, a pastor in Tennessee, who said, because of the resurrection of Jesus, we're no longer afraid to die. We no longer fear death. This is just the first page of a a wonderfully long and glorious story. And death just turns the page. We're no longer afraid to die. But don't stop there. Scotty Smith says we're not only not only afraid to die, but we're not afraid to live. To live as the people who belong to Christ. To live Christ lives. Displaying his glory. Proclaiming his gospel to everyone that, that we're around. The resurrection of Christ guarantees that his people will be made alive. Number two, verse 24 through 26. The resurrection of Christ guarantees that his enemies will be destroyed. His enemies will be destroyed. Look at verse 24 through 26. Then comes the end. When he, Christ, delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Verse 24 through 26, we learn that the resurrection, the past historical resurrection of Jesus Christ initiates and guarantees that all his enemies will be destroyed. I want you to notice something in verse 24. You might think that verse 24 comes first. Look, then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father. That's actually point number three. His kingdom is delivered to his Father. But notice, after. When is the kingdom delivered to his father? After Jesus, as the warrior king, destroys every rule and every authority and every power. For he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet and the last enemy to be destroyed is death. So let's not get ahead of ourselves. The resurrection of Jesus Christ guarantees that his enemies will be destroyed. Christ is shown here as the warrior king who destroys every enemy that is in opposition to God. Notice in verse 24, what's destroyed? Every rule, every authority, every power. In verse 26, what's destroyed? The final enemy, death. Christ's reign is a reign of judgment against God's enemies. And his reign doesn't wait until his coming. Notice, look at the timeline here. His reign doesn't start when he 
comes back and sets up his kingdom on earth. No. His reign began at his resurrection and it continues until he comes and establishes his kingdom in the new heaven and the new earth. Ephesians chapter 1 says it this way. God's power was displayed when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above every rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. He, God, has put all things under his feet, Christ's feet, and gave him, Jesus, as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Christ's reign doesn't wait until his coming. Christ's reign begins at his resurrection. And so what has Jesus been doing ever since his resurrection? He ascended to the right hand of the Father, he is seated in the heavenlies, and he is reigning and currently destroying every enemy. Every what? Rule, authority, and power that is in opposition to God. Each one of these things, these rulers and authorities and powers being the enemy of God means that they challenge the lordship of Christ and must be overcome. And so God sent not only the second Adam, but God sent his warrior king to destroy all of his enemies. Do you ever think about Jesus as a warrior king? Do you ever think about the blood of the cross as the blood of a battle that Jesus fought and won for you? Notice in verse 24 that the enemies are destroyed. They're rendered ineffective. They're dethroned. They're abolished. And they're set under his feet. Now that comes directly from Psalm 110, uh, a psalm that is, is repeated and referenced many times in the New Testament. Being set under the feet is the image of complete subjection. It's the image of the king putting his feet on the neck of his enemies. This is what Jesus has done to everything that has raised its head in opposition against God and his people, friends. Jesus will destroy evil, pride. Jesus will destroy greed, deceit, lust, fear. Jesus will destroy, has destroyed death through his resurrection. I say will and has because it's a finished work at the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and yet it's not finished and realized yet. It's an already, not yet, part of the kingdom. We live between the ascension 
and the coming of Christ. We live, and if you haven't noticed, we still battle these enemies inside and around us every day. But faith in Christ's resurrection embraces this conviction that every aspect of the curse that opposes us will not ultimately triumph over us. But the victory belongs to God's warrior king, the Lord Jesus Christ, whom God has raised from the dead. So let me just ask you this morning, Christian, what would it look like for you to really live in that reality, for you to really live as though all of your enemies really are already defeated? What would that life look like? I think it would look look like viewing tempt uh pardon me I think it would look like viewing temptation as the proven liar that never keeps its promises. It it would look like viewing materialism as a waste of money as a a losing investment. It would look like seeing death as a toothless lion. Because temptation, sin, greed, materialism, death, they've already been defeated by Christ. And so living in that reality looks like not loving the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life. It's not from the Father, but it's from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. Friends, our warrior king has already defeated every one of our enemies. And now every day, while we still struggle against them, we struggle knowing we win. Not because of us, but because of our king. And so, Paul tells the Colossians this. Notice how he links it to the resurrection. Here's how Paul, in just one little letter, describes what the Christian life should look like in this reality. If you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. Why? For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. The resurrection of Jesus Christ guarantees that his people will be made alive and his enemies will be destroyed. Number three, 
Look at verse 24. Then comes the end when he, Christ, delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule, authority, and power. Number four, the resurrection of Christ guarantees that his kingdom will be delivered to his Father. I love that imagery. Can you just imagine one of those Braveheart type movies that we've all seen only gloriously better and real? Where Jesus, the warrior king, defeats the enemy and then delivers the kingdom to his father. Look at it. Verse 24. He not only destroys the enemies, but he delivers the kingdom to God the Father. Revelation declares this, the the seventh trumpet. The angel blows his trumpet, and there are loud voices in heaven. And here's what they say. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fall on their faces and worship God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who was, who is, For you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged. But your wrath came. And the time for the dead to be judged. And for rewarding your servants, the prophets, the saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great. And for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Jesus, King Jesus, delivers the kingdom back to his father. What does it mean that the kingdom is delivered to the father? It means that God's kingdom is restored on earth again. The way that it was supposed to be, the way that God originally intended it, to be in the garden where God dwells with men. God's people in God's place, enjoying God's presence before we rebelled and brought the curse on all of creation. The gospel story happens in four stages. There's creation, there's fall, There's redemption. And then there is restoration. All of history, like a flood, is moving toward the restoration of all things. A new heaven, a new earth, a new people with new bodies that are fit for eternity. Who are they? All who belong to Christ by faith. 
What does it mean for that kingdom to be delivered to the Father? It means that God dwells with men again. And the new covenant, God says, they will be my people and I will be their God. Friends, we don't have to wait for that because the resurrection of Jesus Christ secures his people in the new covenant now, which means that the we're already citizens of the kingdom here on earth. Which means that we have the presence of God living inside of us with the Holy Spirit. And we're part of the new covenant community with the new people of God. Let me ask you, is, is that what your life looks like? Just take a look at last week. Does your life look like we really believe that his kingdom will be delivered to the Father? And it's already initiated. It's already guaranteed. It's just it's being worked out. What would it look like if we took seriously our stated belief that Jesus Christ is already the Lord of the world and that someday his name will cause every knee to bow? and every tongue to confess. What would a life like that look like? I suggest that at a minimum, it would look like knowing that the kingdom of this world, that that seems so dominant, so powerful, so permanent, is actually like a house built on the sand. And its downfall is inevitable. We would know that the kingdom of Christ is just like Jesus described it. It's like a a grain of a mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden and it grew and became a tree And the birds of the air made nests in its branches. That imagery that Jesus used said, my kingdom might look small and insignificant now, but it will grow. Jesus Christ's kingdom will grow into a tree where all the birds of the air from every nation, every tribe, every tongue will find nest. In the kingdom of God. And so. To those who belong to him. Citizens of this kingdom. What did Jesus teach us? He taught us to pray like this. Our father. In heaven. Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And that's not just our prayer. It's our heart's desire. And it's our life's intent. We live so that God's will will be done in us and through us. And God's kingdom made known wherever the citizens of his kingdom live. Friends, the resurrection of Jesus Christ 
initiates and guarantees that his people will be made alive. His enemies will be destroyed. His kingdom will be delivered to his father. And finally, his father will be all in all. Look at the end of this section in verse 27 through 28. For God has put all things in subjection under Christ's feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it's plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him. Why? So that God may be all in all. The resurrection of Jesus Christ guarantees that his Father will be all in all. Notice this comes after the kingdom is delivered. Christ does what? Then the Son himself will also be subjected to him. What an amazing picture. The warrior king delivers the kingdom after destroying every enemy and the warrior king comes and bows in subjection to his father. It is finished. Redemption. Father, your plan of redemption has been accomplished. All things are made new. And Christ subjects himself to the Father. Now what does that mean? Paul wants to avoid any false impression that might come from hearing that Jesus as warrior king defeats every enemy, establishes his kingdom, and then maybe that God the Father is subjected to Christ. Paul wants to avoid. He wants to explain that the reign of Christ does nothing to infringe on the sovereign rule of God the Father. Why? You can speculate all day. Maybe, maybe because in the Greco-Roman world, the gods were always fighting with each other to try to overthrow each other. Paul wants here to emphasize that the Christian God is one. It's Father, Son, Holy Spirit, a monotheistic religion of one God, complete equality between Father, Son, Holy Spirit, no inferiority whatsoever, but different roles, and as the Father is the Sovereign, the Son has the glory of submission. 
Read the Gospel of John and see how many times Jesus says, I'm only here to accomplish my Father's will. I only say what he tells me to say. I only do what he tells me to do. Why? Why does he emphasize that? Because Jesus is the second Adam who's doing what the first Adam failed to do. Whereas the first Adam rebelled against the Father, the second Adam, through the glory of submission, trusts and obeys and loves God more than anything else and accomplishes God's will so that all the sons of Adam who will come to Jesus by faith can be brought into his obedience. Christ is the submissive son who after accomplishing his father's will subjects himself to the father so that, look at that last phrase, it's extraordinary, so that God may be all in all. What does that mean? The unchallenged reign of God alone, one commentator put it. It's similar to saying that God is over all, in all. It is the full and final glory of God through his sovereignty. It's not that God is not all right now. It's not that God is somehow less glorious now than what he used to be. So why in the end does Jesus do all of this so that God will be all in all? Because here on earth, we've been banished from the presence of God. We've been blinded to the glory of God. We're walking around, friends, in darkness. This is not the way it's supposed to be. We don't see the glory of God except in glimmers. But God sent his son. And we see the glory of God in the face of Christ, Paul says in his next letter to the church at Corinth. The same God who said, let there be light, turns on the light in our hearts, the glory of God in our hearts by showing us Christ. Have you seen the glory of God in the face of Christ? If you have, you'll never be the same. So what would it look like to live as those who really believe, really see, really understand that God is all in all? What would it look like for a church, a person, a family? What would it look like to live It would look like Romans chapter 11. It would look like us on our faces saying, oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments. 
and how inscrutable are his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has ever been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that it might be repaid for from him and through him and to him are all things to whom be glory forever. Amen. It would look like your life being from him, to him, through him. I wonder, friend, if your life reflects what you really believe about the glory of God, or at least what we really say we believe about the glory. I'm afraid our lives do reflect what we really believe. I wonder if that matches what we say. Listen, let's not underestimate the resurrection of Christ. Yes, it's a past historical event. Yes, it proved that Jesus really is who he said that he is. But that ain't all. The resurrection is a past historical event that initiates and guarantees future events that have absolutely incredible, profound, present implications. Namely, that his people will be resurrected. Resurrected, His enemies will be removed. His kingdom will be restored. And his father will be all in all. So right here, right now, I wonder, do you belong to Christ? And are you living in light of the resurrection of Christ? That's my prayer. Pray with me, please. God, I pray that you, by your miraculous power, the same power that raised Christ from the dead, would work in hearts, hearts that are dead in sin, even today, to show us, all of us, maybe for the first time Maybe once again, the glory of your grace in the face of Christ. And I pray, God, that you would do the miracle of regeneration to give life where death has reigned. Father, I pray that for Christians in this room that you would cause us to realize the profound implications of the resurrection all that it entails for the future that really does change everything for the present. I pray that you would cause us to meditate on this and then align our lives, unite our lives with not only the death of Christ, but the resurrection of Christ that will take us and make us live for your glory as citizens of your kingdom. Thank you. I pray all this in the name of our warrior king, Jesus. Amen and amen.